it's this completely overwhelming, huge, sprawling collection. I mean, the beauty of it is, is as I said, it really is almost as if she's just packed up um, for the day. It includes everything from, uh, you know, a, a hand-painted flash to little bits of rag um, to unused machine, um, uh, uh, bits of ink, you know, bits for her machines, repair stuff for her machines, her amazing travel box, which actually we didn't see yesterday because it's still in Cornwall. Um, a huge, vast collection of stuff, and it spans in terms of time frame, uh, more or less like uh, the careers of her dad and her. So we have from about 1900 right the way through to the 19 late 1960s in terms of coverage and material and correspondence. Um, after the exhibition closed in Cornwall, uh, that beautiful banner which we'd had on display, which actually we now think thanks to the work of um, the amazing uh, tattoo historian, Terry Manton is actually not by her father, but by a guy called Albert um, Colville Gordon, an American who tattooed in uh, Britain for a while. Uh, this beautiful banner, which is just incredible, ended up being sold uh, to a private collector and a, a private collector who is very serious and who is looking after it very well. But um, I was really worried that, the rest of the collection would would disappear basically would would get sold off like so many other tattoo history collections have been and um, piece by piece or kept in a way that it wouldn't be that accessible or visible to people um and historians in the future so um i got in contact with the national museum of wales uh and again we talk more about this in our interview that you'll be able to hear on the feed with the social history curator there uh Fleur Morse. I got in contact with them and said, look, I really think this is an important collection. Is there any way you have budget or can get hold of budget fundraise to to try and save this collection? And to cut a long story short, and we do talk a bit uh, in a bit more detail with Fleur, even as the COVID pandemic was kind of causing havoc with this stuff, we were able to convince the Arts Council and HMRC, the, the British Tax um, Inspectorate, that this was a collection that was of national importance of art historical importance to the nation and museums like the national museum of wales are able to make a case to the government that they should be allowed to um to buy things with with preferential rates and for a a sum which i do not know um i wasn't privy to the financial dealings but the collection pretty much in its entirety was purchased for the national museum of wales and is now going to be um again as you'll hear more about on our other episodes conserved, looked after, digitized. So it'll be visible to people on the National Museum's website. Um, and I cannot, I cannot wait for people to see these yeah. pictures as well, because like, this is something that I think I mentioned when we recorded yesterday that like, she obviously cared about photos because the stock that everything is, is all the photos are printed on is like really good. Like even the photos that are damaged are still like the card stock is still quite strong so you know no sticky back plastic <laughs> not on those at least um and and you know we hope um that at some point in the next few years there'll be um uh, exhibitions and displays there'll be opportunities for people to go and look at it as independent researchers and independent visitors to the collection and there'll be hopefully publications and research work um coming out of it as well mm-hmm. so um yeah, let me, with that with that said about the about the collection, let me let's just get into Jesse's life really because I think that again is such an amazing story. Um, if absolutely, you her, fa- absolutely fascinating woman who seems to have done everything. 
Fascinating woman, fascinating family. If you Google her, there's not a huge amount out there. What you might find is basically some interviews that I gave um, around the time of the uh, exhibition in Cornwall and also then of the first acquisition um, or occasionally little bits of writing by um, by by uh, Margot Mifflin. But so lots of this story is just, you know, is if you want to read more about it, watch this space. As I said, it's mentioned a bit in that Ronakis book that's hard to get hold of. And there's also a short version of it in a book by a guy called Jeff Jaguar, which came out in the 70s. But other than that, you know, this is really sort of straight from the horse's mouth um, information. So she was born um, in Croydon in South London in uh, 1904. And um, her dad basically lived himself a kind of incredible life. Um as with, I mean, tattoos in general, it's quite difficult to pit, um, pin down exactly what's true and what isn't. And again, take a, anything I'm going to say today with some pinches of salt because all of it is kind of oral history and what people remember and, uh, you know, lots of boasting. And as, again, as you'll see, there's lots of weirdness going on here. But basically her father, <laughs> um, I want to read this. This is, this is actually something that Neil wrote uh, based on some some obviously family history and based on some newspaper clippings that are in the collection. Um, so his name, Jesse's father's name was um, Leonard Collison Lempierre Knight. Uh, he went by um, Charlie Knight or, or Sailor Knight as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote here directly from um, something that Neil wrote on Facebook a, f- a few years ago. So, quote, hearing tales of his father's adventures as a captain in the 3rd Alabama Regiment of the Confederate Army in the American Civil War. Already we're in, right? Already we're like, okay, what's, yeah. that, what's going on there? Sparked a lifelong quest for adventure and travel in young Charles Knight. His mother was a celebrated poetess of some repute, and both parents had high hopes for their son. Um, his, um, so Jesse's mum, sorry, Jesse's grandmother, uh, her name was... Um, uh, Elizabeth Lempierre and um, her poems are uh, uh, sort of basically appear quite often in like English sort of sentimental magazines at the turn of the 20th century and right up into World, to World War One. Mm. Um, he started off, uh, uh, Leonard did, as uh, an office boy working at a, a London office in Paternoster Row. However, several weeks after starting employment, Leonard found himself in search of something more exciting. He went down for a lunch break. Uh, <laughs> he went down for a lunch break at, um, uh, to the docks and was persuaded while he was there to basically jump aboard a ship at St. Catherine's Dock and uh, <laughs> ran away to sea. Right. A life more exciting indeed. A life more exciting. So... Um, he ran off to sea and um, ended up in the Canary Islands. He spent five years, this is about um, 1895, he spent about five years travelling, you know, all these glamorous ports, Chile, Casablanca, Mauritius. Um, according to Neil, quote, he was shipwrecked in Casablanca, robbed in the Moroccan coast, jailed in Mauritius, went ashore in San Francisco to work in the lumber and saltpeter mines. He travelled to Mexico and used Spanish. He learned his travels to work his way in El Paso to work as a handyman on a cattle ranch. While he was in um, in El Paso, he learned cowboying. So he learned um, like sharpshooting, basically, and lasso work. Uh, acquired the names Deadshot Len or Two Gun Ricks. 
which I love. Um, in a, again, according to Neil, in a deadly shootout with Mexican rustlers, he lost the middle finger in his right hand. Um, because he was an expert with two guns, he fired with his left hand and killed his opponent outright with one shot. <laughs> right, that's the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he returns home uh, to quote unquote settle down, marries uh, his wife, a woman called Ethel, and uh, Jesse is their first child. Um, one of the things that Charlie Knight had also learned to do while he was traveling was was tattoo, and he began tattooing. Um, Initially, uh, with through an acquaintance with a guy called Charlie Bell, uh, who was a tattooer out in Kent, and Charlie had basically was also managing this performing tattooed lady. I mean, I say tattooed lady; she was actually only fourteen when she was starting to get tattooed. Of course, yeah, and she was she went by the name Princess Christina, um, very very mm-hmm. famous tattooed lady. You can again, people that listen can Google her. And um, yeah, built up a bit of a reputation as a tattoo artist uh, in Southampton, where they were living. So the 1911 census, Jessie's living with her dad um, and her siblings in Southampton. They move to Wales at some point um, between 1911 and 1920. In the 1921 census, um, uh, Charlie Sailor Knight is is listed as a as a as an artist actually and jesse is helping him out as as um, claimed on the census basically she is more or less running her father's tattoo shop um she's by that point 17 and a half years old 